Good evening. Happy New Year's to each of you. You may have noticed that the title of our session tonight is actually borrowed from a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached a long time ago. God glorified in man's dependence, but it was too good to pass up, so I decided to recycle it and use it for our night tonight. Let's begin our time with prayer. Father, we come to confess, to acknowledge our, our need of you once again. We are needy, and you alone can meet us. You alone can speak to us. You alone can open our eyes to a real, true sense of our need of you. I ask again tonight, you would be pleased to speak to us, to open our eyes, to give us a a sense of who we are and a real sense of your greatness, who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you would turn to Psalm 50, Psalm 50, the new year is A good time to check our spiritual pulse, as it were. Are we spiritually healthy? Perhaps we've fallen into wrong patterns of thinking. Do our actions and our words match up with what we confess we believe? What would God say to us if he called us to stand before him? And this is really what we have here in Psalm 50. Now, what drew me to Psalm 50 was verse 15. I've been meditating on this verse for some weeks, for some months even, and it's been meaning a lot to me. Verse 15, we we read, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me or glorify me. This is a good year. This is a good verse for a new year, is it not? I believe God wants to grow in us a daily conscious sense of our need for Him. And this is an important indicator of spiritual health, isn't it? That we're healthy if we recognize our need for God. And so I want to apply this one verse, but in order to do that, I have to go through the whole psalm. Right? Because it's in the context of the psalm, and that's what I teach the students to do, so that's what I have to do myself, follow the rules. So we're going to move fairly quickly through the psalm as a whole, and then we're going to come back and camp out a little bit on verse 15. There are three sections to this psalm, and there's a concluding verse. The first section takes us from verse 1 to verse 6. You've got the notes there, so you kind of see where I'm going. The title of this section I've titled, God Summons the Universe to a Day of Judgment. So I'm going to read these first six verses and make a few comments. Verse 1, the mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shone forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him and it is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness. 
For God himself is judge. Selah. So we have here in these first six verses three important features we want to think about. First of all, I think you will notice right off the emphasis on the majesty and glory of God. The psalm begins with three names of God in rapid succession. El, Elohim, Yahweh has spoken. And this, these three names of God in rapid succession emphasize the importance and seriousness of the word that he speaks. What is he doing? God here is calling the entire earth. He's summoning the entire earth to this day of judgment. So his word has great power. You see in verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. So there is this revelation of the glory of God on Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? It's the place where Jerusalem is built, right? Where the temple is built, where God has chosen to cause his name to dwell, to, to, to reveal himself to his people. And there he reveals himself by shining forth. We see in verse 3, fire devours before him. The fire of God's presence, the refining fire of God's presence and word. And it's very tempestuous around him. That is, there is something very awe-inspiring about this appearance of God at Mount Zion. The description here is probably meant to remind us of when God descended upon Mount Sinai. And you read in Exodus that Mount Sinai was in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and in the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And the people were petrified. These are men of war. Petrified. You also see here in verse 6, the glory and majesty of God expressed by the heavens, that is, I assume all the hosts of heavens, declaring God's righteousness. That God the judge is a righteous judge. He judges with truth. He judges with equity. And so right away there's this emphasis on the majesty and glory of God. But number two, you also see in these first six verses an emphasis on the universal scope of this day of judgment. Look at verse 1. He summons the earth from what? The rising of the sun to its setting. So from the east to the west, the entire earth is gathered before God. But not just the entire earth, but the entire universe. Because you get to chapter verse 4, and he summons heaven above and earth beneath. So whether you look to the left or to the right, or you look up or you look down, the entire universe is gathered before God. All, all men, all angels, all creatures, all are gathered before God. A serious day. But look at this third element that we see in these first six verses. There's a surprising focus on God's own people. Look at verse 4. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge the ungodly, the pagans, the unbelievers. No. Surprisingly, his own people. His own people. Although we as God's people might have expected the unbelievers, the pagans, 
to be judged by God. Surely if God's gathering all the nations, everyone, it's, you know, because of them. He's going to judge them. But all of a sudden we find ourselves in the uncomfortable position of being the focus of God's judgment. But everyone's gathered, believers and unbelievers alike. All are gathered. The entire heavens are gathered. But they are just witnesses to God's judgment of His people. God's evaluation of His people. The whole focus of His attention is on the godly. He's going to judge His people. Gather my godly ones. Some translations say my faithful ones. Who are these? These are the ones who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. That's a beautiful way to put it, isn't it? In other words, this psalm, this pronouncement of judgment is for us. Those who have entered into a covenant relationship through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what all these sacrifices were ultimately pointing to. And then you have this little word, Selah. Selah is appropriate here because it's a word that is often used in the Psalms to signal a pause. Think about what you have just heard. And we need to pause here because God has gathered all before Him in order to judge His people. Are we interested in that? (laughs) Are we interested in what He has to say? You know, what if an angel woke you in the middle of the night and he tells you, look, God is offering for you to come into his presence so that he may evaluate your life. <laughs> he's not going to pronounce final judgment. He's simply going to evaluate. He's going to tell you what he thinks about your life, about your actions, about your worship of him. Would you take him up on it? It'd be fairly intimidating, wouldn't it? In other words, do we want God to speak a corrective word to us? Do we welcome what God has to say? Do we really want to know what he thinks? Are we willing at the beginning of a new year to cry with the psalmist, prove me, O Lord, try me, test my heart and my mind? Or as it says somewhere else, see if there be any wicked way. And lead me into the way everlasting. There's a principle in God's word that judgment always begins in the house of God. You see it in 1 Peter. You see it in a few other places as well. That God first purifies the sons of Levi. That's where he begins. And although that may be intimidating, there's something extremely comforting about that. There's a blessing to that. And the blessing of that is that we do not have to wait until the last day to know what God thinks of us. Isn't that comforting? That we can know what God thinks of us now, right? We can hear what He has to say to us now before it's too late. If we wait till the last day, it's too late. The new year is often a time in which we Determine once again to commit ourselves to be faithful in our spiritual disciplines. Is that not often true? We make resolutions to pray, to read God's word, to be faithful in serving or giving, etc. 
But there are particular dangers that accompany this renewed commitment. And God is going to here warn us in these next two sections against the dangers that accompany our acts of worship, our devotion to God. And he's going to warn us against two particular dangers. First of all, he's going to warn us against mechanical, idolatrous worship. Verses 7 through 15. He begins in verse 7 by addressing his people. So let's read this section now. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Like He's not upset with them for their sacrifices. Look at verse 9. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. So he addresses his people in verse 7 and in verse 8. He begins to correct them, but he says, I'm not reproving you for what you're doing, but I'm reproving you for how you are doing it. In other words, God is saying to them, you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it with the wrong spirit. You're doing it with the wrong attitude. What are they doing? Well, they're offering sacrifices. The sacrificial system was a central part of Old Testament worship. These were Israel's acts of worship. And although we no longer offer bloody sacrifices to God, we still have acts of worship ourselves, do we not? And it's just as easy for us to worship God with the wrong spirit as it was for the Israelites to do it. So what does God have to say? God continues in verse 9 and following by making a series of statements in which he declares that he has no need of their sacrifices because everything in the world belongs to him. See, the attitude with which the Israelites were sacrificing, were worshiping God, communicated in some way that God was less than God. And this was dishonoring to him. And worship can quickly devolve into idolatrous, into an idolatrous spirit. Idolatry is when I treat God as a peer, or at least a near equal. Someone who is like me. I have needs. He has needs. If I scratch his back, he's obligated to scratch my back. That's idolatry. If I worship him, he's going to like that. And he's going to look favorably upon me. And he's going to do me good. There is something mindless and mechanical about idolatry. Idolaters are not interested in a relationship with their God. They simply want to obligate his favor. We've been hearing a lot in the news about quid pro quo. What's quid pro quo? That's when I expect you to do me a favor because I've done you a favor. 
Well, that's, that's idolatry when it's directed towards God. And when we approach God with this kind of an attitude, we dishonor Him. We belittle Him. We may be speaking or singing words that are very worshipful in their essence, but from God's perspective, we are demoting Him. We are devaluing Him. We are dishonoring Him. There's also a more subtle form of this that can easily creep into our acts of worship, particularly those acts of worship that are routine in our lives. And the danger is that we begin to do them mindlessly and mechanically. Every week morning here at EI, the staff and the students pray for half an hour from 8.30 to 9. Every single day. And it's easy, I'll admit it, it's easy to come to that time and pray in a mechanical fashion. To speak words that I've trained myself to speak for years and years and years. And yet my heart and my mind not be present in what I am saying. And although I'm speaking words of worship to God, I am dishonoring Him in the very same time. It's easy to do. It's not that hard. It's possible and even easy to approach God, pray, sing, read His Word, hear His Word proclaimed, partake of the Lord's Supper, and do it all without a conscious sense of need for God. We do it mechanically, mindlessly, and our thoughts might be completely elsewhere. Listen to what I want to say here. When we engage in any religious act, and I'm not using the word religious here in a bad sense. When we, when we engage in any religious act without a conscious sense of our need, we are dishonoring God. It's subtle. But we are dishonoring. Well, you say, well, how is that? Why is that? Because we are subtly communicating to God that since we have no need for this act, He must have a need for this act. Does that make sense? We, we might not constantly be thinking that, but if we come to God without any sense of need, well, I don't need it. He must need it. He's the one asking for it. And that very thought is dishonoring to God. You know, I don't, I don't feel like I need to pray, but God wants me to pray. So, you know, I'll help him out. I'll pray. I don't really sense a need to read God's word. No, no, I'm not saying I don't feel like it. I'm saying I don't sense a need for it. But God wants me to read his word, so fine, I'll do it for his sake. I don't feel the need to gather with God's people and worship God and hear his word proclaimed, but God wants me to do it, so I'll do it and make him happy. Have you ever fallen into that line of thinking? It's it's an easy thing to fall into. And God is against that kind of thinking because it belittles him. It makes him small. And it also overturns the order of reality because all of a sudden here we are claiming to be more like God than we are. No sense of need. You know, I don't need this. While we're also subtly communicating through our actions that God is less than God. He needs it. God does not need our worship. We have to be very clear about that. God has no need of our prayers. God does not need our money. 
God does not need our service. God does not need our devotion. God is not favorable towards us because we worship Him. God does not like us more because we do more for Him. In a sense, God is saying, I am not impressed by your religiosity. I'm not. I have no need of it. You are doing me no favors. I am God. Stop belittling me. Stop demeaning me. Stop patronizing me. It's a serious word that he's giving here. What's the needed response? Verse 14 and 15. Start worshiping me with a right attitude. What is that right attitude? An attitude of thanksgiving. Why is that an appropriate attitude? Because thanksgiving is the natural response to someone who meets a need that we could not meet in ourselves. And so thanksgiving by its very nature acknowledges a sense of need. Does that make sense? Thanksgiving, true thanksgiving by its very nature is antithetical to idolatry. He says, start paying your vows to me. That is, start taking your promises to me seriously. Start calling upon me in the day of trouble. Acknowledge you need me. Start honoring me as the self-sufficient God that I am. This is what God is saying. Now we're going to come back to this in verse 15 here in a moment. But this is the very first danger he warns us of. The danger of mechanical, idolatrous worship. Just going through the motions without a real, genuine sense of our need for God. The second warning here is against hypocritical worship, and it begins in verse 16. So read with me verses 16 to 22. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to my and to take my covenant in your mouth. For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you've done, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you, and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. That's a strong word. Again, you have the people addressed. Who are these people? We well, say, here's the wicked. Ah, finally, God is addressing the wicked, but not so quickly. He's still addressing those who claim to know God, right? Because who are these? These are people who have in their mouth, they're, they're telling of God's statutes, Right? They've taken his covenant in their mouth. These are people who are... See, God is not addressing pagans who deny God. He's, he's addressing people who claim to know God. He's addressing those who talk the talk, but who do not walk the walk. Right? There's a hypocrisy in their lives. And so he then continues in verse 17 to give a few reasons why he is correcting them, why he's rebuking them. Because although they appear to others to be religious and godly, God sees through the veneer. 
Why? Because God is looking at the inward parts. God is looking at the heart. And what does he see? Well, he sees people who hate God's discipline. They're not humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God, but they are rejecting God's discipline in their life. You see that also they do not value God's word. They cast his word behind them. You see in verse 18 that they break God's law, specifically God's seventh, eighth, and ninth commandment. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And all three of these they break. And then you see in verse 21 that they dishonor God by interpreting his silence as his approval. And they refashion God into their own image, breaking some of the first four commandments. They think that God is just like them and approves of their behavior. And so here God again in verse 22 gives them the needed response. How are they to respond? Well, they are to consider this indictment, this warning. Consider it. The word consider here conveys the idea of the kind of understanding that enables you to make use of the information given to you. It's a practical understanding. It's not just a knowledge of it, but a knowledge that leads to action. And here, particularly the action of repentance, right? Because failure to turn is serious. The alternative is serious. If there's no turning, God says he will himself tear us in pieces and there will be none to deliver. The God who promised to rescue us in verse 15 here is promising to tear us apart. Hypocrisy is serious to God. Jesus reserved his harshest words for the Pharisees. The religious elite who portrayed godliness, they held to a form of godliness, as Paul writes, but they denied its power. That is, they did not have the reality of that godliness within them. They were able to fake people out, but they were not able to fake God out. See, what what is God after? You see in this Psalm 50, what is God after? God is after worshipers. Worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In some sense, these are the two warnings. See, God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit. That is, we must worship him in accord with who he is. With an understanding of who he is. We must worship him with a certain attitude, a certain frame of mind. But we must also worship him according to what is true. According to reality. Finally, in verse 23, he summarizes the needed response to those who perform acts of worship in a mechanical, mindless way. He says, verse 23, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to those who are performing acts of worship in a hypocritical fashion, he says, and to him who orders his way or his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. That is, in the midst of God's judgment, or we might say God's evaluation, God offers hope. This is not final judgment here. This is 
This is evaluatory judgment. He offers hope if we will respond with humility to what he says. So that's Psalm 50. Quite a strong psalm, is it not? A serious word. But let's turn back to verse 15. Because I want to make three observations here from Psalm, from Psalm 50, verse 15. Let me read it again. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. The first point I want to make, first observation I believe we need to make is that God is graciously inviting us into a relationship with himself. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, this psalm is pretty strong. It's kind of a negative way to start out the new year with all this rebuke and correction and judgment. But I think if you will look closely at this psalm, you will see in the midst of this judgment, even through the strong words, you will see a beautiful revelation of the heart of God. There is a wonderful revelation of God's heart right here in this psalm. See, true worship always begins with a right view of God. A right understanding of God's heart. And here you have God, El, Elohim, Yahweh, the God of glory and majesty summoning the entire universe before Him. And why does He do that? Because He wants to communicate His heart to us. And He wants to invite us. Look at the, the I believe verse 15 is part of the very core of what God wants to say to us. And what is the, at the core of his message? Call upon me. What an invitation. Call upon me. I am waiting to be needed. I long to rescue you from your troubles. See, if you think about it, we don't really serve God. We don't benefit God. We don't do anything that adds to God. God condescends to serve us. God comes to us and says, call upon me, I will rescue you. It's incredible. He doesn't need us, but he offers himself to us. He doesn't need us, but he wants to show himself strong on our behalf. And this is the kind of relationship that God is graciously extending to us. No, it's not the kind of relationship that exists between equals. It's a relationship that exists between a God who is the supreme giver and we who are infinitely needy. We've done nothing for him that in any way obligates his favor but he graciously seeks us and invites us to call upon him. Isn't that wonderful? It's an incredible revelation of God's heart right here. That God is willing to summon the whole earth and say, look, we're getting this wrong. You, you, you're getting this wrong. You don't serve me, I serve you. You're not adding anything to me. I can add something to your experience. 
Think about it. This is the way our relationship began. Is it not? How did our relationship with God begin? There was a day when you and I became conscious of our sin before God, before a holy God. We became conscious of our desperate need to be washed, to be forgiven, to be set free. And what did we do? We cried out to God. We cried out to God. And what did he do? He rescued us, right? He delivered us. He forgave us. He washed us. He set us free. And what did we do in response? We honored him. We glorified him. Right? This is how our relationship with God began. But it's also the way our relationship with God is sustained and continues. We never outlive our need for God. We're daily in desperate need of God. And God is daily wanting to rescue us so that we might daily respond in joyful thanks to God, bringing glory to His name. What a cycle, beautiful cycle. This is our glorious God, the one who has rescued us, the one with whom we have entered into a covenant relationship through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And He's saying to us in this new year, I want your relationship with me to be characterized by a conscious dependence on me in the midst of trouble. That's what he wants from us. Secondly, second point, second application here from this verse 15. Let us acknowledge our need by calling upon God. Calling upon God is acknowledging our need. I I like to watch survival documentaries. People who find themselves in real trouble, circumstances in which they should have died, and yet against all odds, they survive. They're a lot of fun to watch. But what you'll notice in a lot of these stories is that when the person gets to that desperate point where they think they're going to die, they often cry out to God. They often pray. Why? Because prayer is a natural response to trouble, right? When we're in deep trouble, we pray. As they say, there are no atheists in foxholes. The problem with us is that we're often not conscious of how much trouble we really are in. God here is not speaking about a once a year or once a decade or a once in a lifetime kind of trouble. He's calling about trouble that comes to us day after day after day. Job. Job writes in verse chapter 5, verse 7, he says, For man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Next time you sit around a campfire at night, just watch those sparks. There's constantly going up. He says, that's like the troubles of this life. They're incessant. That's reality. And I'm not being super pessimistic here because Jesus actually agrees with me. He says, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. He says, each day has enough trouble of its own. So he even agrees that there's a lot of trouble. Every single day is attended by trouble. Trouble is part of living in a fallen world. If you're alive, you have troubles. 
Some people have health troubles. Some have relational troubles. Some have work troubles. Some have family troubles. Some have financial troubles. Some have decisional troubles. But every one of us have heart troubles. Do we not? Every one of us have sins that beset us, sins that grip us. The pride in our heart that seeks to elevate ourself above others. The, the greed in our heart that always longs for more than we have. The selfishness of our heart that seeks what is best for ourselves, even at the expense of others. The lust in our heart that desires what is forbidden. These are real troubles that daily attend us out of which only God can rescue us. But there's a more serious kind of trouble. What is the most serious trouble we can be in? The most serious trouble we can fall into is to become blind to our own sense of need. To lose sight of the fact that we need God. It's the trouble of self-deception, self-sufficiency. And so the call in this new year is cultivate a conscious sense of need for God. Cultivate a conscious sense of need for God. Ask God. Do that. Ask God to make you sensitive to the troubles of life that we might more quickly run to God. In the very next Psalm, Psalm 51, verse 16, he says, you don't delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, a broken heart is a heart that is conscious of its need for God. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount in a very radical way by saying, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who are the poor in spirit? Who are the ones who mourn? They are again the ones who recognize their bankruptcy before God. They recognize that they bring nothing to the table. There's actually kind of something comforting about that when you get a hold of it. That we offer nothing to God. We are completely dependent upon Him. So let's recognize God for who He is. And the invitation that He offers us and let us acknowledge our need by calling upon God and finally let us honor God by allowing Him to rescue us and by giving thanks for His deliverance. Imagine a vehicle crashes into a concrete barrier and the driver inside tries to escape but cannot manage to open the doors or windows. All of a sudden, a fire breaks out and the smoke starts to fill the cabin, you know, the, the, the vehicle. And he starts beating on the, the windows and screaming, Get me out of here! And at that moment, 
a carpenter and his truck comes around the corner and he sees it and he sees what's going on and he jumps out, grabs his hammer, comes to the windshield, smashes the windshield out, drags the driver to safety. Here's the question. Who is the hero? Who gets the honor? The driver? No. The carpenter. Imagine a house burning down and as the firemen pull up, a woman comes out rushing towards him screaming, my baby, my baby, my baby's in the house. And a brave fireman rushes in, finds the half-dead baby and comes rushing out, saving its life. Again, who is the hero? Who gets the honor? See, in some sense, the carpenter is glorified by the driver's need and dependence and the the fireman is glorified by the, the baby and the woman's need. And in the same way, God is glorified by our desperate need for Him. He's glorifying. And we need to say this to ourselves. We are not the hero. This is very contra culture. (laughs) But we are not the hero. We are not the Savior. We are not the rescuer. We are the person stuck in the car, unable to escape unless someone comes and rescues us. That's who we are. We are like the baby in the burning house who has no means of delivering himself. God is the hero. God is the rescuer. And he gets the glory. And we get the joy of seeing him rescue us again and again and again and again. God is glorified by our dependence. A simple, genuine cry for help brings more glory to God than a thousand mindless and mechanical prayers. Why? Because that simple cry for God, for help, glorifies God as God. It glorifies God as God. It recognizes God for who He is. You are the Savior. You are the Deliverer. And that simple cry for help also is a confession of who we are. We are needy. Remember the tax collector? What did he cry out? Very simple prayer. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And he went home rescued, justified. What is the promise? I will rescue you. It's not I might rescue you. It's I will rescue you. Sometimes God rescues in a moment. Sometimes he rescues over months or even years. But the promise is certain and God is perfect in His timing. In Ephesians, we are told to always give thanks for all things. Well, how can we always give thanks for all things? Well, here's one way. By always crying out to God for all things and seeing Him rescue us always for all things. Watching Him work everything out for good in our lives. And I can testify from personal experience that there is a great joy that comes when we consciously cry out to God and then we see Him deliver us and meet that need. It's a great joy in seeing Him do that. 
And when that happens, you can't help but praise God. You can't help but give him thanks. You can't help but being like the Israelites on the far side of the Red Sea, praising God for the deliverance that God has given them. So in conclusion, do you want God to be honored and glorified in your life this year? I think the answer is yes, right? We want God to be glorified. Then ask God to make you more conscious of your need for him. Ask him to increase your conscious dependence upon him. Because God is glorified in our dependence. Right? What's the passage here? Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor, you will glorify me. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We confess, Father, I confess that it's easy to slip into worshiping you in a mechanical way without a real conscious sense of my need for you. Well, I think we can all confess that it's easy to fall into hypocritical worship. Allowing things in our lives that should not be there while all the time paying lip service to you. Father, we are, we are in trouble. We are needy. We are sinners. And we ask that you might open our eyes more and more to that reality. Not we, not so we can try harder tomorrow, but Father, that you might rescue us again and again and again and again. And that we might glorify you. So we ask this in the name of Jesus, our rescuer, our deliverer. Amen.